Well, good morning. Welcome to First Baptist Church. We are so glad that you have joined us uh, for worship this morning. As always, we trust that God will meet with you through this time and speak to you in the ways that He need that you need to hear from Him uh, as we go through our service, as we continue through the rest of what we've got going on this morning. We do want to draw your attention right quick. Anytime we have a, a rose here at the front of the sanctuary, that is good news. That means a new life has been born to someone in our congregation. And so this is in honor of Brooks Matthew, born to Matt and Brittany Trimnell. And Terry is a proud grandmother yet again. And so congratulations. We celebrate with you this morning. And Jan is a great-grandmother, so congratulations to you as well. She, Jan's like, what, am I chopped liver back here? I apologize. I apologize for that, but a special thank you to the great-grandmother. <laughs> uh, I do want to remind you that the, the rose is yours to take home, including the Voss. So. Oh, Matthew and Whitney. Well, I, I apologize for that. That is my, our bad. I apologize. Matthew and Whitney, uh, correction on our part. We, we did that wrong. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we... Head into the remainder of the sermon. Father God, we just thank you so much for your goodness and your grace to us. God, we do thank you for your great love with which you've loved us. Lord, as we've gone through Romans, Paul over and over and over again points to the, the greatness of your grace. Lord, how you do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Lord, points out the reality of our lostness and our sin and despair, Lord, but that you came to offer us salvation to make a way by your grace, through your power, in accordance with your plan. God, I pray that as we continue our march through Romans, as we look at your word yet again this morning, that you would once again open our hearts and minds, like that, our, Lord, that our ears and our eyes would be open to see and hear your truth this morning, to consider how you may be speaking to us, to, to consider changes that you may be calling us to in our lives. And Lord, seeking to do that which is most gracious, that which would bring the most glory to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and that which would most magnify your gospel. God, speak to us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The rights that we enjoy as citizens of these United States of America uh, rival those of any civilization in history. We have more freedoms, truly, in this time than anywhere else on the planet at this moment. A and really, with the exception of maybe a, a, an elite Roman citizen, we pervasively have more freedoms than have ever been afforded to any people in human history. Rights that are codified and protected according to our Constitution. Now, I understand, I understand that we haven't always gotten it right as a nation, and that there are more than a few examples where uh, freedoms and rights weren't necessarily evenly or consistently observed or afforded, but as a general rule, we've got a really good thing going here. The one freedom that I, I want to, there's a couple of freedoms actually, a couple of rights if you will, that as we go into Romans chapter 14 today that we have to consider, that we have to think about. They're, they're rights that Paul is, is encouraging us to think about how we utilize them and when we utilize them to make sure that what we do is bringing attention to Jesus, that we're not becoming distractions from the truth of God's word. 
And the first one that, that we need to think about is the, the freedom of speech. In our country, everyone does in fact, to the, a large degree, have the right to their own opinion. And with very few exceptions, we have the right to share that opinion both early and often, wherever we want, however we want, regardless of how right that opinion is. Our Constitution provides the avenue for that. We also, however, have the right to be silent. You know, we, we often, we know of that, the, the Miranda rights, that when someone is arrested and, and they, they are getting, the, the officer is, is dealing with someone who has broken a law, they tell them that you have the right to be silent. Anything that you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. And, and the reality is we if, we, if we look at how life works right now, it's not just the court of law that we have to worry about. We have the right to be silent because anything that we say can and will be used against us in the court of public opinion. And there are ways where that shouldn't, that shouldn't stop us from saying what needs to be said. But if we're honest, there are times where we do have to weigh the reality of the fact that we have the right to say whatever we're thinking, whenever we're thinking it. But we also have the right to keep our mouths shut. We need to consider that for a little more often than I think we do. And I include myself in that. Just because we have an opinion... Just because we have a thought in our head does not mean that we are obliged to share them. Just because we have the right to speak freely does not mean we have to speak at all. As the people of God, called by his name according to his purposes... We must learn to place our rights and privileges as citizens of this kingdom, of kingdoms of this world, in subservience to our responsibilities as witnesses and ambassadors for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that is part of the point that Paul is going to make for us in Romans 14. One of the, the, the overarching point that Paul makes in Romans 14 is this. Just because you have a right does not mean that utilizing that right is always a good thing. Sometimes we may have the right, but if we use our right in the wrong way, it is then wrong. Let's look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 14. Starting in verse 1 of Romans chapter 14, Paul says this, Except the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. For God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or they fall. And they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so 
to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to ourselves alone. And none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life. So that he might be the Lord over both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or your sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to place any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or a sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person, it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, of peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean. But it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Better is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat because their eating is not from faith. And everything that does not come from faith is sin. Paul's got a lot of things to, to say here about our rights and the ex exercise there, thereof. And he's not even talking about, so let's, let's take this because people tend to get all kind of kerfluffled and confused. I, I want to be very clear, it does apply to our political rights. But understand that what Paul is talking about here is our rights as followers of Jesus Christ. And if, Christ, if Paul is saying, hey, you know what, there are times and places where it is right and proper for us to limit the exercise of our, our rights as followers of Christ, then wouldn't we also think that it applies to everything else? I, I've got to be honest, this week this has been something that has, has bothered me immensely. That, that, that we are so quick to divorce what happens in the public forum from our faith. As if we can be Christian in here and we can be something else out there. As if God's word only applies some of the time. As if God's word is on par with certain other civic documents. Let me be clear with you on this from the very beginning. There is no document ever written by any human being or any group of human beings, regardless of how intelligent or how inspired it may seem, that measures up to the divine inspiration and authority of Scripture. 
I will not argue with you about what the Bible says juxtaposed against the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence. This is the authority for life and godliness. The end. Anything else is supplemental. Anything else is subject to opinion and personal, personal perspective. This is not subjective. Now, I get that my interpretation may not be the objective, unadulterated truth. I get that. And I will happily have a conversation with you about whether or not my interpretation is correct. But understand that this is the starting point. This is what God's word says. I can say no other. And Paul starts with a very clear and important reminder that I think we need both early and often as the church. Not just today, but throughout all of time. Whom God accepts, we must accept. Whom God accepts, whom God invites to the proverbial table, whom God invites into his family, are welcomed into his family. I'm going to say this again later, but none of us gets to be divine hall monitors for Jesus. None of us gets to walk around and say, you know what, you don't belong here. Can someone, I need an usher? This one right here is not supposed to be here today. That's not, that's not for us to decide. If God has spread a wide net for his gospel and said, come, come all who may, then we don't have the right to say, come all who may, except for you. God's grace is offensively pervasive. The scope of the availability of God's grace is absolutely, from our human standpoint, unreasonable. And whom God accepts, we must accept. But Paul goes a step further, and he points out that grace makes space for differences of opinion and outworking. Grace makes space for differences of opinion and outworking. Paul starts right from the beginning. He says that the point that I just made, whom God accepts, we must accept. He says it right there. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over matters of disputable, that are disputable. He goes on from the, we've got to accept this person to say, don't draw dividing lines and go to battle over, quote, disputable matters. What does that mean? Well, disputable matters could very well and rightly be interpre- interpreted and translated matters of opinion. Don't get lost in the the subjective details of of the world around us. Don't don't get lost in in the subjective details of the application of things. I I think we should absolutely have the difficult conversations. And and it's, it's absolutely true. I made a post the other day and people were like, well, we should be able to disagree and understand that disagreement doesn't mean that we don't love someone. I totally agree with that. I have been immensely and incredibly to the point of borderline panic attacks uncomfortable with what I've had to preach the last two weeks. I don't like it. I am not enjoying this. This is not fun for me. But, but I still love you, even, even though I'm saying things that I know some of you disagree with. I still love you, and we can disagree and, and still be friends. We can disagree and still be brothers and sisters in Christ. One of, one of my pastors that I used to work with back in the day, we had a, a discussion back and forth. And he said, well, Jeremy, on this, we're just going to have to agree to disagree and move on with grace. And I said, you know what? I do. I agree to disagree. And I still love you and respect you as a mentor and friend. We need to make space for that. 
in the church. Where we understand, as I just said a moment ago, that, that none of our opinions are authoritative or infallible. That we do, in fact, make mistakes and get it wrong sometimes. And be open to that discussion. How do we need to correct our actions, our attitudes, and our understandings? Paul does address two of our favorite pastimes in this statement, though. Our own opinions and arguing over them. It's been said, where there are two or three gathered in his name, there are at least four opinions. <clears throat> One of my favorite jokes actually illustrates this really well. And it goes like this. There, there once was a man who was stuck on a deserted island for years and years and years. And, and eventually a boat was passing by and saw this man in the distance off on the island by himself. And the man waved him down and the boat came over to pick him up. And the man told the, the rescuer, I have been here for, for years waiting for someone to come and rescue me. Been here by myself for all this time. It is so great to see another human face. It is so great to finally be rescued. And as they were making their way to the, the ship to, to head back, the rescuer said, excuse me, sir, I can't help but ask you a question. You, you said to me that you are the only one on this island. The man being rescued said, absolutely, I'm the only one that has been here for all of these years, all by myself. And the rescuer said, well, sir, I've got to ask you a question then, because as we were bringing you off of the island, I noticed that off in the distance there were three huts. Why, why were there three huts? If you were the only one, why were there three huts? He's like... Understand the confusion, easy explanation. See that, that hut in the middle? That's my house. I live in that one. And you see that hut to the left? That's where I attend church now. And that hut to the right? Well, that's where I used to attend church. <laughs> and we laugh about that, but that is somewhat a caricature of the reality that we face. We are so intent on our own opinions that sometimes we can't even agree within ourselves. We certainly can't agree amongst ourselves. We prove that regularly and early and often in the current situation that we find ourselves in. But we need to remember once again that our opinions are neither infallible or authoritative. We must humbly make space for differences of interpretation, understanding, and even action as Christians. Everyone isn't in the same place on their journey with Jesus. Everyone hasn't come to the same level of revelation and understanding, understanding in the church. And those of us who are further along must make space for those who will join us along the way. And we must patiently endure with them, bringing them along with us. Now Paul goes on... A little bit further after talking about this, that we shouldn't be quarreling over disputable, secondary, and tertiary matters. As a matter of fact, he goes on and he reminds us of something. That divine acceptance is not dependent upon human activity. That, that none of us, again, it's not just that we, we shouldn't be deciding who can and can't come in and be a part of the church. But we don't get to tell who is and who is not saved. That that is between them and Jesus. Only, only God can see the heart. And sure, there may be actions that, that give us an idea and that, that make us think one way or the other, but that, that idea, that thought, that opinion in our head should not dictate and determine how we then treat those people. Matters of personal conscience 
should not become points of public contention. And Paul uses two examples throughout the text, but the first one he uses here is the example of eating or abstaining from eating meats. Seems strange to us, maybe not as strange as it once did, being the rise of organic and vegetarianism in our world. But Paul, Paul is talking about something that was a big, hot-button issue in the first century. I, I would say, and, and I realize I'm stepping out there into it a little bit, this is akin to our modern understanding and the way that we deal with alcohol in the church. This would be the same kind of discussion. And Paul is talking about whether or not we should abstain or eat this meat. In the first century Rome, there were temples everywhere. Temples to all kinds of gods. Nowhere more so than in the capital of Rome itself. And there was a reason for that. Rome realized that if they were going to truly integrate these people from these distant and diverse lands, the best way to do it was not to, to refuse and to destroy their cultures and their way of lives, but instead to absorb them into the empire. So one of the first things that the Roman government would do after conquering a people would be to bring their gods to the Roman capital and to build a temple for that God in Rome. So at just about every turn, there were these different gods, these different temples, these different means of worship. And often, the meat sold in the public market near these temples would have been previously sacrificed or offered to one of those deities. It was nearly impossible to know whether or not the meat at the market had been offered or not. It wasn't like it was today where you could look and there was a sticker that said organic or not, non-GMO. It didn't say not offered to the idol, offered to the idol. You couldn't tell even by pricing. It just was what it was. And so you had all this, this meat that was there. And for some, either because of Jewish upbringing or past affiliation with these false gods, eating that meat, if it had even slightest the chance of carrying the taint of idolatry, for them, it seemed utterly and unexcusably sinful. For others, though, they knew that idols were simply, as, as my friend in India likes to say, dumb sticks and stones. And so for them, meat was just meat. What does it matter? So for them, all this meat was just budget ribeye. They just find the cheapest one because why does it matter? But others were incredibly offended by it. And it became a major point of contention in the early church. I mean, we see Paul addressing it, not just in Romans, but also in Corinthians. We also see Peter and, and Paul having it out. Paul talks about it. I, I confronted Peter to his face because he was to be blamed. And it all, sat, it all settled on what meats could we eat or could we not. It was a big thing. And Paul says, we got to be careful. This, this is, this is a, a subjective thing. And, and Paul actually tells us there are some instances where things are in weird shades of gray. I hate even saying that. I would wish that everything would be clearly black and white, but brothers and sisters, it is not. There are a great many areas where God, God entrusts us to use our divinely given common sense. And we each get to choose. And you know what's even more troubling for me about this? That there may be things where for you, it is perfectly okay for you to do something. But for me, it is sin. 
Paul clearly says that in the text. That for someone whose conscience is offended because of the action, them, for them it is sin. They shouldn't do it. For this other person whose conscience isn't offended, for them it's no big deal. It's not a problem. You know what is a big deal on both ends, though? How we respond to these differences of opinion and perspective. These differences in application. Paul warns that those who are more permissive in their faith have no right to look down upon or to be dismissive of those who don't have the same experience or understanding. We shouldn't sit in our high horse in our position of strength and be like, well, you're just ignorant, and one day you'll really understand, but I, I just don't have time to deal with you. If you really knew, then you would do what I do. You would believe like I believe. You would act like I believe. I act. But Paul, conversely, doesn't give those who are weaker an out. Those who are more restrictive in their convictions don't have the right to stand in condemnation of those who do otherwise. They, they don't have the right to point the holy finger and wag the finger at, a, at how sinful that other person is because they are executing their rights in ways that are different, yet not necessarily wrong. Th this is a hard truth for me. It would be so much easier if God would just delineate, this is right and this is wrong. Do this, don't do this. You know, we always talk about the Bible isn't a list of do's and don'ts. And I, I lament that fact. I wish that it was. It would make things so much easier for me. There, there, there is a level of some areas of Scripture where, that, where it's kind of nebulous. Where, where there isn't a clear thing that Christians should think, say, and do this. And in those moments, we've got to make space. Again, God hasn't assigned any of us to serve as gatekeepers or hall monitors to evaluate who should be in and who should be out. We don't get to judge who's in and who's out. Now, I want to make a clear, I want to add a note, an addendum to what I'm saying before we go on. This does not mean that we don't call sin, sin, or hold each other accountable for our actions. I mean, Paul's already said that, right? All, all the way er earlier, he, he has said clearly, when, when we see those issues, I think that we should have the conversation. But I think that when we should do it, we should take a humble and gracious posture. That we don't come in condemnation, but we come ready to have a conversation. In order to hold someone accountable, they must first have to be accepted. When we do confront potentially damaging and sinful behavior, it should be done with compassionate grace, with the ultimate goal of restoration, not retribution. We don't have the right to disregard, disrespect, or condemn those who don't meet our expectations or agree with us. We have to find the way to, to speak with compassion and mercy and grace, even when, even in the moments where it is absolutely clear that they are living in sin, even then we have to act with compassionate grace and mercy, just as Christ did for us. We need to remember, salvation only comes by grace through faith as the result of divine action. Whether we stand or fall depends exclusively upon the acceptance of or the refusal of the grace of God. 
Everything beyond that is details to be handled with patience and understanding. Whom God accepts, though, we must accept. We must make space for those who are different. And here's here's the truth. Every aspect of our lives should be lived for God's glory. Everything that we do should not, not be necessarily filtered through the lens of, do I have this right or do I not have this right? I would, I would go a step further. It shouldn't even be f- filtered through the lens of, is this right or is this wrong? It should be filtered through the, the lens of, is this what Jesus would want me to do and is this what is going to bring him the most glory in my life? Yes, we should decide to do that which is right. We should flee that which is wrong. But ultimately, our goal should be to bring glory to God and to make much of his great name. Scripture is quite clear on some issues. But again, a great many are left open to various levels of interpretation. I was clearly reminded of this, and I use that word intentionally here, when I wrote a paper several years ago in graduate school for my Bible college. And I wrote the paper, and it was on different theology and different doctrines, different things that I believed about God and the Bible. And several times in that paper, as I would write, before I would reference a passage of Scripture, I would say, the Bible clearly says. And I was dead certain that what the Bible said in that moment meant this, that, or the other. And over and over and over and over again in this paper, I would say, the Bible clearly says, the Bible clearly says, the Bible clearly says, and I got the paper back, and it was blood red. I mean, I, got, I actually got a good grade. I got an A on the paper, but, but the, there was red all over the paper. And I'm like, this, is, this creates cognitive dissonance in me because you said that I passed, but you have blood all over my paper. What is wrong? So I began reading. And every place that I said, the Bible clearly says, he highlighted it in red. And at the end of the paper, he said, does the Bible clearly say? And he made a note. He said, if the Bible was as clear as you say it is in your paper, there would be many fewer denominations and much fewer arguments within the church. It blasted me. Totally changed the way that I talk about the Bible and the way that I, I wrote papers. I try to be very careful about when I say the Bible clearly says, because a lot of times It's not that the Bible actually clearly says that. It's I've clearly been taught that. Does the Bible clearly say? Now, I'm not saying that we should live with a wishy-washy faith. That's not what I'm saying at all. Those of you that know me know way too well that, that that is not at all what I'm suggesting. Stand firm for what you believe and have the difficult conversations. I'm just saying that we should be very careful with the way that we present our beliefs. And we should leave room, roll with me here for a second, for the slight fact that we might be wrong on some things. I actually, allow me to guarantee it. There are things that we believe as Baptists right now, as First Baptist Church, that are probably not right. That history later will look and, and later theologians will look and say, why did they think that? Why did they do that? The Bible clearly says. Paul uses yet a, another issue of his day to illustrate this point. The observance of the Sabbath and other holy days. For the Jews, the Sabbath was the holiest of all days. The Bible quite clearly said 
remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, right? It unambiguously, clearly, word for word said, remember the Sabbath and to keep it holy. It was to be a day of rest. A day dedicated to the Lord in its entirety. It was a day to focus on worship and the study of the word of God, restoring connection between humanity and the creator. A change happened, though, after the resurrection of Jesus. Following the resurrection, Sunday became the day of worship. You do understand that, right? That Sunday is not, nor has it ever been, the Sabbath day. Sabbath means seven, which would be Saturday. Sunday is day one, the beginning of the week. And it says that in the Bible. But something shifted, right? Jesus was raised on the first day of the week. And so Christians began meeting on Sunday, the first day of the week, the day that Jesus was was resurrected. They began calling it the Lord's Day. And on that day, they met to worship, to study the word, to listen to the apostles' teaching, which they did throughout the week as well. But, But Sunday was the day dedicated to the Lord. Well, as time passed and more Gentiles were saved and and the church began to even out between Gentiles and Jews and began to increase in Gentiles, you know what began happening? People stopped remembering the Sabbath by the letter of the law. Now, they were still doing what the Sabbath required, but they weren't doing it on the seventh day. They were doing it on the first day. And for some, this was inexcusable. You know what's interesting about the text here, though? The text says that some view some days as special, others view every day alike. Well, this is is one of those issues where in Greek and English, there's not an exact translation. The word alike does not appear in the Greek. And I think actually using it, the intent of the, the translators is lost here. He's not saying that, that some view every day as just being every day. A day is just a day is a day. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that for these new Christians that were coming in, they were saying, why are we just devoting the Sabbath to the Lord? Why aren't we remembering the Lord on every day? Why is one day sacred and another not? Why is every day not sacred? That, that God is with us and in us and moving and leading in every day. The Bible clearly says, remember the Lord, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. So the question must be asked, who was correct? Were those that were saying, we got to view these one days as holy and keep them holy? And, and, or were those that saying, hey, all days are equally holy? Who was correct? Paul is a jerk. He doesn't answer. I mean, inherent in the text is the idea that who's correct? Both. They're both right. And what was good for one didn't work for the other. And what worked for one didn't work for the first. Our consciences, in light of the renewing of our minds through the power of the Holy Spirit and in keeping with our understanding of God's word, should determine our actions. His word should be the lamp unto our feet and the light unto our path. Everything should be filtered through the truth of what it says. And the truth is that we all, as Paul himself says in Romans 14, as followers of Christ, we belong to the Lord, so all we do 
should be done in accordance with his will to please him. In verses 6 through 8, Paul uses one of these two phrases no less than six times. To the Lord or for the Lord. In three verses, he uses those phrases six different times. To the Lord or for the Lord. So if we treat a day as sacred, it should be in service to Christ and for his glory. If we eat certain foods or drink certain drinks, it should be with thanks for his provision that he might strengthen us for his service. And if we abstain, it should be out of respect for the Lord, for his glory, and in pursuit of his holiness. Again, Paul is not suggesting a laissez-faire, do what you think is right in your own eyes approach. We should do what our conscience tells us will bring God glory and what will allow us to best serve his purposes. Paul says this better, I think, in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, where he says, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. It says this, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Anything that we do, any action, no matter how small or great, should be for the glory of God. That should be the filter. Christ is Lord. That's the confession that we make in Romans 10, where where it says that if we would be saved, that that we should confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. If you believe that, you will be saved. By grace, through faith, we accept Jesus. That, That is the end game on salvation. That that is the standard. And as followers of Christ, we are his servants. Our faith, Christ is Lord, which means he is the authority and example both now and into eternity. Our faith in the risen Christ and submission to his lordship gives us hope in the face of death. But it also establishes his authority over the lives we now live. When we judge out of weakness or strength, we make the same mistake both ways. We place ourselves on the throne. We make ourselves, once again, the authority, not just of our own lives, but of those of others. Paul warns again that that the weak condemn those who fail to meet their standards. Notice that that's a weakness. It is the weak who condemn others for failing to meet their standards. It is the strong who condescend to those who can't stand under the weight of the calling. It doesn't matter what you consider yourself or where you fall. If you are condemning or condescending, you are wrong. We are wrong. In both cases, we make the mistake of making ourselves the standard of right action. And as followers of Jesus, it is his image that we are to emulate He is the filter through which our actions and our attitudes must flow. None of us can stand based on our own actions. None of us are good enough. All of us are only saved by grace through faith. It is only through faith in the grace of Jesus and through divine declaration that we can be made right before God. Every aspect of our lives should be lived for the glory of God. With that in mind. And with that being in mind, we need to remember, this needs to be in our mind. Our rights must not cause wrong in the lives of others. 
The utilization of our rights must not cause wrong in the lives of others. Instead of being consumed by our issues with the attitudes and actions of others, instead of being caught up in how wrong they are, we should concern ourselves with how our attitudes and actions might impact them. A first concern should not be the way that the world around us is doing wrong things. The world gonna world. Sinners are going to sin, and it is going to take time to come out of that. But for those of us that have come along, our job is not to look at that, to condemn, and to, to try to tear them down, and to, to point out their failures, but to live a right life that would inspire them to come along with us. Again, not saying we shouldn't call sin sin. So want to double down on that. We should, but we should do so in the way that we live before it's in the way that we talk. And Paul's challenges here, as he goes from 13 on, shift. His challenges are for those that would think themselves strong. The exercise of our freedom in Christ must never become something that causes people to trip off the path, a stumbling block, as Paul says in verse 13, or leads others into a trap that causes them harm because of their own struggles, obstacles, when we consider our rights, then it is not simply a question of what I can do, but what I should do. It goes beyond, again, simple right or wrong to what is helpful and what is potentially harmful. We need to think what impact might our actions and attitudes have on weaker brothers and sisters or on those who are lost, who can't handle the same freedom that we can. Acting in love requires us to consider the conscience and needs of others over our own rights and privileges. Look at verse 15. He says, if your brother or sister is in distress because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone who, for whom Christ died. It's not just eating. Let's not get lost and hung up on the idea of, of days and eating and drinking because that's not what Paul's talking about. Paul is talking about all of our actions. When our actions and our attitudes, when our words and our opinions begin to, to, to obscure people's view of Christ, when they distract people from the truth of who God is and what he's done, that is a problem. That is a problem. Things of secondary importance must never become our primary concern. Food, drink, and all these other earthly things are but passing pleasures. They may bring happiness in the moment, but there's more to life. Our attention and affection be, should be fixed on eternal things, on lasting righteousness, peace, and joy. Things that only come through the indwelling power and leading of the Holy Spirit. Remember what Paul said in Romans 12, that our lives are to be lived as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. And in verse 13, he goes on to say that that sacrifice is best seen in paying the debt that we live to all, which is the debt of love, compassionate grace. This passage is what we often call, and it's not just here, it's also in the Corinthians, it's what we often call the weaker brother principle. The weaker brother principle. And the weaker brother principle is that we should opt not to do things that are permitted in order to protect the conscience and practice of weaker and less mature 
brothers and sisters in Christ. The freedom that we have, the freedom that Christ gives us, should never become a weapon that destroys lives that Christ died to save. We must consistently choose the path that will lead to peace amongst God's people and that will encourage and build one another up in faith and love. So when presented with the choice between exercising personal liberty or acting in love for others, choose love. Be like Jesus. Philippians 2 tells us that. I, I feel like I reference this all the time, so I won't, I won't go there. But it's that we are to have the same mind as the mind of Christ, that we aren't to look out to our own needs, to our own interests, but to the interests of others. Following the example of Christ. I've seen this on the interwebs the last few days, and it makes me so angry. We don't get the right to explain away the grace of God. There is never a time where it is okay to say, yeah, Jesus did this, but we don't have to. Yeah, Jesus demonstrated grace, but, but we shouldn't be coerced into doing these good things for other people because it should be our choice. Well, we should choose to do what is right. We should choose to. There is not a group of people in the world this week that I've seen that is more anti-grace than us. I was mowing the lawn the other day, and I was thinking of the song, Amazing Grace, and I thought to myself, what's so amazing about grace? In the way that we present it, in the way that we treat the world, in the way that we present ourselves to those around us, what is so amazing about grace? God can forgive all of our sins, but we get so upset about good that we didn't choose that's happening to other people. Understand that I began this sermon weeks ago. I am not talking about any, don't get lost on any specific thing. This is the, my heart of hearts. We as the people of God should be the most grace-filled people in the world. I'm not saying we shouldn't call it sin, sin again. I'm not saying we shouldn't stand up to the realities. Didn't say this last week. We should stand up, but we should do it in the right way. We can have the right and do the right thing and still be wrong. Self-sacrificial love is the defining feature of the kingdom of God. From the mouth of Jesus to the hand of Paul, self-sacrificing love is it. That's what most shows that we are followers of Jesus. Do we believe it? What we do must be determined by what we believe. The filter that should determine all of our actions should be what we believe to be true about Jesus Christ and who he has called us to be. We shouldn't follow our hearts. We should follow his. In strength, some beliefs are best kept between you and Jesus. In some instances, for the sake of others. Paul says exactly that in verse 22. Paul, Paul says, so whatever you believe about these secondary things is what he's saying. Keep these between yourself and God. You have the right to be silent. I have the right and responsibility sometimes to be silent. In weakness, when in doubt, opt out. If our conscience raises concerns and questions, it is right and proper for us to stop and stand firm. 
I want to end with this quote from Philip Schaff. He's quoted as saying, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. May our attitudes and actions as the church of Jesus Christ be consistent with the life that he lived. May it be saturated with his love and grace that his holiness may be seen in the love that we demonstrate. May we stand firm in what we believe to be true, but may we hold it with loose hands, understanding that we might be wrong. May we treat others with the same grace that we ourselves expect to receive from Jesus and from his followers. Father God, I pray that you would work and move in our lives. God, I pray that you would help us to determine our actions not based upon what we have the right to do, but what is right according to your truth and according to your example. May we offer ourselves wholly to you as sacrifices. May we understand the nature of your scandalous grace. Lord, may we not be satisfied to just accept it to ourselves but may we offer and extend that same grace to others in every possible way, Lord, whether it be spiritually, emotionally, or materially. God, may we be a people of grace. May the world see Christ when they look at us. May they see the cross. May the amazing grace of Jesus be something that's more than just what we sing about, but the lives that we live. God, we offer you ourselves this morning asking that you would take us and use us according to your plan and purpose, that you might be honored and glorified in and through our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.